Welcome to the Physics Central News Podcast. This is your physics news for the month of October. Our first story, China launched a rocket to the moon last week. The unmanned mission will orbit the moon and then return to Earth. It has no official name, but is being called Chang'e 5T1, or Test 1, because the rocket is just a test. Its mission is to do a practice run with some re-entry technology. That technology will be used in an upcoming scientific mission called Chang'e 5. That mission, also unmanned, is set to land on the surface of the moon, collect samples and do some experiments, and then return to Earth. In 2013, China's Chang'e 4 mission landed on the moon carrying the U-2 lunar rover. Chang'e 5 would go a step further by returning its moon payload to Earth. There is talk that China is ramping up to send astronauts to the moon, which brings up an important question. Why? Now, there is always a reason to keep exploring the solar system, But for decades, people have questioned the usefulness of sending human astronauts on those missions. It's more expensive and certainly more dangerous to send people into space rather than unmanned missions or robots. And in many cases, unmanned missions are capable of carrying out most, if not all, of the scientific work that astronauts can do. There are certainly scientific benefits to sending humans into space, but the biggest advantages may have more to do with morale on the ground. Astronauts inspire people. They build national pride. And as the space race between the U.S. and Russia showed us, they demonstrate a country's technological superiority. So even though the space race is long over, Would it still be symbolic for China to cross the same finish line? And does China hope to eventually compete with the space programs of the U.S. and Russia? Could China be the first country to send an astronaut to Mars? Those questions won't be answered for a few decades at least, but last week China took one small step in the right direction. All right, on to story number two from Mike Lucibella. Thanks, Kala. So in October, two teams of physicists working at CERN's LHCb detector announced that they discovered two new particles. Hang on, settle down, put away the Nobel Prizes. Now they're cool, but it's not quite the same thing as discovering a new Higgs boson. What physicists saw were two kinds of mesons, which are made up of two fundamental particles called quarks stuck together. Now there are six different kinds of quarks, adorably named up, down, charm, strange, top, and bottom plus another six antimatter partners known as antiquarks. Now, both of CERN's new mesons have a charm antiquark and one strange quark, and weigh in at about three times the mass of a proton. Now, this is the first time these particular mesons have been isolated, because they don't really exist in nature. It takes a tremendous energy of the LHC smashing particles together to create them, which hasn't really been found in the universe since more than just a few moments after the Big Bang. Now, Scientists hope to maybe use them to probe the nature of another fundamental particle, the gluon, which is what binds quarks to one another. One other thing, the names of these new mesons are a bit of a mouthful, named DS3STAR2860-DASH and DS1STAR2860-DASH, respectively. It doesn't really have the same charm as some of the quark names, I think. Kella, back to you. 
Story number three, what can physics tell us about the feel of a city? Every city has a feel to it. That element that arises from a city's architecture and the colors and how spread out or how crowded it is. Sometimes two cities can share that same feel. Well, two physicists in France think they've quantified one of the elements that contributes to the feel of a city. The researchers developed a program that can take a satellite map of a city and quickly measure the shape and area of the city blocks. Based on the resulting profiles, they came up with four general groups that cities can fall into. Buenos Aires, Brazil, for example, actually has its own group. It consists almost entirely of square and rectangular-shaped city blocks of medium size. Athens, Greece belongs to another group with only a few members. Athens has very small city blocks, but they have a wide range of shapes. So not just squares and rectangles, but triangles and pentagons and different polygons. Now besides Athens, all European cities fell into one group, along with all American cities. These cities are like Athens, with a wide distribution of block shapes. But the size of the blocks is slightly larger than those in Athens, averaging about medium in size. This very large group of American and most European cities can then be broken up into subgroups, and this is where there becomes a fairly clear division between European and American cities. All the European cities fall into one subgroup. Almost all of the American cities fall into a second subgroup. But there are a few American cities that fall into the European subgroup. So these are cities that have a city block profile similar to European cities. Those include Boston, Portland, Pittsburgh, Baltimore, and Washington, D.C. So do those cities have more of a European feel to them? That's debatable. There are obviously many more factors that would make an American city feel European. And the fact that almost all European cities ended up in the same subcategory suggests that this tool is fairly coarse. Still, the researchers say this is something that city planners might consider when they're trying to give an area just the right feel. For our final story, the Nobel Prize in Physics was awarded this month. But you know what? I really want to talk about the Chemistry Prize, which has a healthy dose of physics mixed into it. The award was shared between Eric Betzig, Stefan Hell, and William Murner. These three men were given the most prestigious prize in science, because they outsmarted something called Abbey's Diffraction Limit, which is basically the last word on image resolution. It seems like every smartphone that comes out has a camera with better image resolution than the last one. That means, of course, that the camera can resolve smaller details. So the images are sharper, less blurry, they have more pixels. In 1873, a physicist named Ernest Abbey showed that the lowest resolution one can achieve with an optical camera is half the wavelength of the light 
that's being captured. This won't affect your cell phone camera anytime soon because for optical light, this comes out to about 0.2 micrometers. That's one thousandth of a millimeter. Eric Betzig and Stefan Hell both came up with methods that circumvent that limit, allowing them to use optical light to image objects smaller than 0.2 micrometers. Both methods rely on fluorescent molecules, which are used frequently in biological imaging. Researchers usually attach fluorescent molecules to the object they want to image. When the fluorescent molecules are hit with a specific wavelength of light, they start radiating. That radiated light can then be detected and used to image the object. But if two of the proteins are closer than 0.2 micrometers, Abby's limit says they will blur together. So if a biologist is trying to image a cell that's only a few micrometers wide, she'll see the general outline of the cell, but the details will be pretty blurry. Stefan Hell and Eric Betzig both developed different techniques for getting around Abby's limit, and both of these methods use tiny dots to create a larger image. So you could compare them to the artistic method of pointillism, where painters create entire works of art using only tiny dots of paint. They never take broad strokes. Stefan Hell's approach starts with a laser beam used to illuminate the fluorescent molecules. The laser has to be larger than 0.2 micrometers. It hits the object, and the fluorescence begins. But just then, a second laser is shot at the object and quenches the fluorescent light, blacks it out, almost all of it, except for a very small area in the center. So this tiny dot, much smaller than 0.2 micrometers, is left to radiate. So the device scans the entire object like this, going methodically back and forth. Creating the image dot by dot. Now Eric Betzig's technique also has the sort of pointillism aspect to it, but it's a bit more random. So another group of researchers had found a way to illuminate groups of fluorescent proteins at different times. So Betzig starts by illuminating a handful of proteins that are all separated by at least. 0.2 micrometers. He takes a picture of those proteins, and when they stop fluorescing, he illuminates another group of proteins and takes a picture of those. And he continues this process and eventually layers the images together. Now, in the image, the proteins are less than 0.2 micrometers apart, but they don't blur together because they weren't actually imaged at the same time. So the completed image can have a resolution better than 0.2 micrometers. William Murner contributed to this work by being the first scientist to illuminate a single molecule. Both of these approaches require some very detailed knowledge about how to play with light. Abby's diffraction limit still stands; it's still technically correct, but with innovation and physics know-how. These scientists have managed to circumvent it. I'm Calla Cofield, and I'm Mike Lucibella. And you've been listening to the Physics Central podcast. In fact, you have been listening to my last piece as a regular producer for the Physics Central podcast. 
I started doing this four years ago, and I've made just over 150 podcasts. I just want to say thank you so much to everyone at Physics Central and the American Physical Society, especially my amazing co-host Mike Lucibella and Brian Jacobs-Meyer. Thank you guys so much. Kala, it's been a pleasure. Four years and 150 podcasts, that's really incredible. You know, thank you for all your hard work, and we're really going to miss you. Oh, don't get all mushy on me. And of course, thank you for listening to this podcast. Because of our listeners, I got to make it my job to talk about physics, and this is what I love to do. So thank you. I will still be writing about physics, and you can follow my work at my website, calicofield.com, or find me on Twitter. The Physics Central podcast will go on, so tune in next week. And be sure to look for more podcasts, our Physics Buzz blog, resources, and so much more at physicscentral.com. I'm Cala Cofield. So long. <laughs>